1: So, what would you do this week?
0: Um, I just, well, considering this is t- technically dropping the same week as the last episode, yeah. I am just going to throw it all in. I just got back from Indiana, visited mm-hmm. my family, I spent a whole week out there. It was wonderful. I got to see everybody, got to catch up. Um, and, honestly, we just spent most of the time indoors, just mm-hmm. hanging out, uh, <laughs> which is what I wanted, because... Right. I I hadn't seen them in a year. I was like, I don't want to go and visit friends. I don't want to go and do a million things. Like, I just want to spend time with you guys. So, um, I actually managed to go back on the week of homecoming somehow. Oh wow! So I was... did. You get to
1: be homecoming queen? Yes, Just like I did. You always wanted for the first time.
0: <laughs> um, no, but my youngest sister Kylie was uh, cheer is a cheerleader, mm-hmm. and she was giving it her all up there. She was whipping her little red hair around. <laughs> she was doing her jumps, her kicks, everything. She was living her best life. Nice. Um, so I did go to those events. I went to the homecoming parade, the homecoming game. Um, and all that fun stuff, which was fun. So that's what we ended up doing. Yeah. Um, and before that I was in DragCon New York Mm -hmm. and I had a lot of fun there. What did I do there? I just walked around. I had a good time. I don't really remember it. I never remember DragCon. (laughs) We go, (laughs) we're drinking all day. We go from 6am to 2am, go to bed, wake back up at 6 and go to 2am again Mm -hmm. for like four days in a row. So... (laughs) my mind is just fried afterwards and there's no memories. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's true. That's true. I don't think you've ever really remembered anything. You come back with pictures, but you're like... Yeah, I'm I'm like, like, I don't remember taking this, um, but I don't know when that happened. I don't know when that happened. Uh, (laughs) You talk to me like once while you're out there. Oh, you know what I did do?
0: I remember one... This is why I don't remember what I did, except for prior to doing this. So I smuggled in an entire bottle of Bacardi... Uh-huh. I went and I bought like one of those big like smart waters, uh-huh. walking down the, str- the street of New York, not the street, the sidewalk, just mm. poured it out, you know, <laughs> went to a liquor store, bought a bottle of Bacardi. Nice. Then I just casually got on my knees on a sidewalk while everybody in New York's passing me, <laughs> just dumped the Bacardi into the water bottle, <laughs> walked the block up, threw the bottle away and smuggled the whole bottle of Bacardi into Dracon Let me tell you in something. In a water bottle. The
1: vodka rum in a water bottle. Best trick ever.
0: It's... Because they're Wherever. not going to be like, I need to smell your water. Oh, yeah. Nobody
1: ever does. No, no. You go into a family reunion, fill that water bottle up with vodka. I'm teaching how people how to be alcoholics. Take
0: a Gatorade okay. bottle, fill it up with red wine. The, Who would ever su- uh, suspect that? I feel like the red wine might be a little hard. No, I did it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my God, my... The vodka... In the water bottle, that was like my go-to. The second thing that I would do is I would get a Coke with like some nips, and I would fill. Yeah, that just up. fill the nip, like, fill know. the Coke
0: up. Nobody's yeah. gonna suspect that. Yeah,
1: although. <laughs> <laughs> one time I did, I was like drinking at my parents' house and like somebody went to grab my Coke and I like, was like, no, not that. that's <laughs> my Coke. I, was like, I don't like germs.
0: <laughs> I remember, um, I had a vod- I did the same thing except it was like a seltzer water, mm-hmm. like a lemon seltzer or something. And I filled it with vodka. Like it was still had some, so I basically made a vodka soda and yeah. in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I set it down and I walked away and I came back and there and, uh, somebody at the booth was like, so, um, <laughs> I got a special surprise today. There was like somebody that was working the booth with us and they were like really thirsty. So they went to take a big swig of the water and just got a wonderful surprise. uh, Yes. That's like the worst thing when you really are thirsty. Mm. The amount of times I've done that to myself where I've like, (laughs) (laughs) I've made like spiked drinks and I'll have them somewhere and I'll come back. I don't know. Maybe I put them in the fridge. I don't know how this happened. I used to live crazy. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I come back to get like a drink of water later and I'm so dehydrated and I take a big swig and it's just vodka fills my mouth. Yeah. The worst feeling in the world. The
1: what that's the one downfall of well, the one downfall of alcohol. There's a couple, but the one that is <laughs> you like maybe an alcoholic it, do, <laughs> it does not quench your thirst, <laughs> no matter how hard you try. And trust me, I tried many times. I would be like stubbornly dying of thirst and be like, I'm just gonna keep drinking this whiskey until it quench until it gets me too right? drunk like, to care.
0: It's like two in the morning, you don't want to get out of bed, and all you have next to your bed is the bottle of whiskey that you keep there.
1: <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> (laughs) If this is your life, uh, you really should get help, though, because I'm going to tell you that normal people don't sleep with a bottle of whiskey or vodka by their bed.
0: I used to have two bottles of wine in my bed, a bottle of whiskey Mm -hmm. next to my bed, and a bottle of orange juice next to my bed with a cup that I would make screwdrivers with.
1: Uh, Same. It wasn't screwdrivers, though. I just had a bottle of vodka next to my bed at all times. Also, the (laughs) amount of times that I woke up and I had passed out with the drink spilling over me. (laughs) Oh my god! Like uh, every time I wake up, I'm like, "God damn it!"
0: <laughs> That's just waste right there. That's right. Then you well, wring your shirt out trying to get the, the, the amount of times
1: I woke up in the morning and I was thirsty and I just grabbed that mixed drink that I'd been sitting there all night and <laughs> chugged that. Yeah, God, good stuff. Um, but now that we're done telling you how to ruin your life with alcoholism. Um, Welcome to Your Queer Story.
0: (laughs) The podcast that inspires peace, Mm. love, and radicalism. And we are your hosts. I am Evan Jones. And I'm the fabulous Paul Hobbs.
1: And uh, we're we're happy to be here. Mm. We're dropping a surprise episode.
0: We screwed up. We basically went a whole month without recording. Yeah, basically we um, did. Yeah. So we are making it up to you guys in the best way we know how, producing more great content. That's right. What else could you want from us?
1: Putting ourselves in your ears, in your body, and refilling. You've been depleted, and we want to refill you.
0: You can still be queer in September, even though we didn't... Promote it to you. Yes. Um, if you haven't already, we would really appreciate a five-star review. You can review yes. us on iTunes, on Google, on Stitcher. It literally wherever doesn't you're li- exist anymore. Oh, uh, Apple Podcasts. Yes. Wherever you listen to your podcast at, please leave us a review. If there's no review system, leave us a comment. If there's no comment system, go to our website and comment. Share. I'm share as- the episode. Yes, I'm asking a lot of you right now, but by you doing these things, it allows more people to listen to our podcast, which allows yeah. them... To feel more comfortable in their own skin, to learn history about people that are just like them, and um, to have fun. Yeah, I think we're pretty fun to listen to. personally. We are pretty fun
1: to listen to, and we're gonna. And I like, I'm really looking forward to October because we have a lot of fun topics. Like, well, I mean fun also kind of dark and gruesome because we want to stick with the theme
0: but listen we need those downloads we're going towards (laughs) true crime
1: that's right (laughs) don't worry we're not gonna we're not turning into a true crime podcast only for the month of october just because we wanted to give you guys some dark and horror it's
0: on theme it's gonna be a lot of fun yeah Um, And who doesn't want to hear some spooky shit in in October? That's the whole fucking point of the month. Exactly.
1: That's yes. It's all about gruesome, gore, blood, guts. uh, Who killed who? Um, I was gonna say what's your favorite Halloween movie, but um, I don't. Mine would literally, and I don't. I this is so unoriginal, but it would be Hocus Pocus. But that's also because I cannot stand any kind of scary movie.
0: You know what? Mine was Halloween Town. Oh, okay. It's like a cheesy fucking Disney. I think it might have been Disney. If not, it's was always on Disney Channel. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure like it's like a I don't know, something you watch when you're in early teens. Okay. Um maybe I don't know how relevant like I don't know if I would watch it today as an adult. Yeah. Um but I just remember when I was a kid, I would always look forward to watching that every year. They had like three or four different ones. Huh.
1: I mean, might I, be something I feel that like that I've you heard would enjoy this it. before, but I don't know what you're talking about. You would about. enjoy it. I, I probably would. As long as it's not. It's too not scary. scary. Okay. Because it's like, like hocus pocus is my threshold for scary. And yeah. It's like yeah.
0: it's like that level of scary. <sighs> All right. All
1: right. I could do that.
0: I've been trying to watch more horror films though, um, but I've I've found that there aren't any good horror films. If I mean that are like modern. Like if you really yeah. want to watch something scary, you kind of have to go back. Yeah. And, to me. I don't really get scared by much, so I kind of have to look for something more gory, and then it's just scary because it's gory. It's not scary because it's scary. Yeah. And I, I, I can't find a good... So if you have any really good scary movies, let me know.
1: See, I, I, I really do appreciate appreciate a psycho thriller, like... Um, psycho thriller. I, I appreciate a thriller, but I don't I do not do supernatural. I don't do gore. But, like, but that's also why I love... I'm a big Hitchcock fan. That's why mm-hmm. her puppy was named Hitchcock, because... Uh, Alfred Hitchcock, just like the way that he did things. So if you've never seen, if you like old, you could always watch psycho. Mm-hmm. Um, also dial M for murder is a really good one. So that's what I will watch in, in, uh, I October.
0: like when I watch a scary movie, if it's anything supernatural or ghost or like monster, like it doesn't scare me because I know that those things aren't real. Yeah. The things that will scare me are like, this is a doctor who you go to see him and he kills you or he like rips your teeth out and like cuts your wrists and like injects you with poison while you're in his chair. That's what will scare me.
1: That's why you get hyperventilating whenever you go see the doctor. That's why you're so scared. I'm I'm
0: chill. No, that's why I hyperventilate when I get my blood drawn. If I have to get my blood drawn, it's at least a 30-minute process. (laughs) I remember last time I went, uh, the guy saw me and he was like, oh, great, my first appointment. (laughs) That was literally what he said. And I was like, wow, thanks. Wow. They have to take me to a special room. They bring me snacks and drinks. They lay me down. They have a full blown oh conversation god. with me. And then they're like, okay, turn your head now. And I turn my head and then my body instantly tenses up. It's this poor phlebotomist probably hates me every time he sees me come in. <laughs> oh my god. I just um, can't do it. Can't do it.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: Speaking of it. which that's coming up my yearly checkups in November, so better start preparing now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> getting mentally prepared. I need to go. I I've not gone to my yearly checkup yet, and um, it was supposed to be in February. So I got to really get on that. I'm really awful with all things medical, and it uh, Samantha finds it appalling. She really does.
0: <laughs> no, I'm terrified. I'm fine at the dentist. Like they'll be oh, drilling in my no. teeth, and I'll just lay mm-hmm. there and be like, "So, how's your day?" Like I'll fall. I almost fall asleep at the dentist every time because oh, I'm so God, relaxed. No. Oh no! Had laser eye surgery. Almost fell asleep. I was so relaxed. Bring me to get blood drawn. Nope wow yep no can't do it or shots can't do shots
1: no you'd never be able to take testosterone no i wouldn't no hope your levels stay good hopefully (laughs) (laughs) if they start to drop paul's like i guess we're going the other way folks
0: (laughs) everybody get on board this is paula (laughs) (laughs) basically
1: (laughs) all right um so we should probably talk about our second half of the history of monogamy and polyamory and this week we actually get to talk about polyamory and if you haven't heard the first half it's not necessary, but it, it. I think it's really good.
0: It's something you should listen to because we talk a lot about um, not only the history of monogamy and polyamory, but we talk a lot about um, relationship health. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. We talk about things you should discuss in a relationship and in our opinion, because our opinion is the best opinion, uh, how you should <laughs> act opinion. in a relationship.
1: Yeah, we talk a lot about that, and um, and then it helps you. It helps you understand why um, polyamory is a thing, and like why monogamy is a thing, which is right. a big thing for me. Like when you understand, even in the queer community, I find like
0: a lot of prejudice against people who are polysexual, and which is very shocking because that's kind of how. So I feel that in the queer community, at least in the gay scene, I can speak for mm-hmm. that most people are polysexual. Yeah, I wouldn't say I don't want to say most. I would say that most people are outwardly or putting on a front that they're polysexual, yeah. or actually are. Like it's perceived that the gay scene is very sexually fluid. It's Not very fluid, fluid, sexually open.
1: I wouldn't say that the that they're polysexual, but like we talked about in the last episode, they're forced into this role. Because, I mean, it's becoming more normalized now, but especially in the past, you kind of, like, you just got sex where you could. Right. And so, it, like, having a relationship where you settle down and live with someone was very hard to do, and few people did, and people just kind of resigned themselves to the fact that this is how we have to live.
0: Right, and then built on that, though, it was glamorized.
1: Yeah, it was. Well, because you, you flip it, right? Yep. You're forced into this role, so you're like, I like this fucking role. I'll do this fucking role all mm-hmm. night. And, and and that's okay. It's again it's not that it's bad, but then it's hard to like know like are people polysexual or are they just expressing in the culture in like culture that they're able to?
0: Right. Because nobody wants to let anybody be themselves. Exactly.
1: So Except for us I, <laughs> Except for us. <laughs> am I starting this episode? Yes, you are. Okay, good. Um, so on our last episode we dove into the history of monogamy and non monogamy in civili- civilization's past. We covered the four forms of monogamy, social monogamy, where two people commit to building a life together, marital monogamy, where two people enter into lifelong commitment to one another as social partners, genetic monogamy, two parents who have children only with each other, and for sexual monogamy, the practice of two people committing to only have sex with one another. We pointed out that in studies done in over 1,200 cultures and societies, only 186 were monogamous in all four areas of monogamy. And in truth, full monogamy is a Western practice developed and enforced by monotheistic religions, specifically
0: Christianity. Surprise. Yeah. However, the lack of monogamy in other cultures around the world is not the practice of polyamory. While these cultures may be What while polygenic. these cultures may be polygyny polygyny?
1: Maybe polygenic. Um,
0: While these cultures may be polygenic, when one man has multiple female partners, or polyandry, when one woman has multiple male partners, or both, the concept of polyamory is a lifestyle created by and for Western culture. Because of the heavy emphasis and restrictions of a monogamous society, polysexual people have worked to create an ethical and safe culture to express their multi love desires. In other areas around the world, the separate environment would not be necessary as most cultures are very fluid in terms of social, genetic, marital, and sexual experiences. However, Western society has forced poly people to define their lifestyle. And we want to add once again that polygamy, in all its current Western forms, is a religious practice rooted in misogyny and sexism and is not part of the polyamorous lifestyle. So keep that in mind. Polygamy and polyamory are different. While the term may simply mean a multi-marriage, in its current expression, it means something much different than polyamory.
1: Yeah, so and again, I'm stressing that So we're talking about polyamory, which is the lifestyle. So every person who's like we said in an open relationship or sexual experiences that doesn't mean that they're polyamorous polyamorous is a is a you can be polysexual that could be an orientation but polyamorous is a lifestyle that you consciously choose to live and be a part of so again like you just saying oh i'm polyamorous because i'm in a threesome that doesn't mean that you're polyamorous you, you might be a part of a thruple, but you're not polyamorous unless you abide by the codes and the ethics of a polyamorous lifestyle So what is polyamory, and when was this modern-day lifestyle first presented to Western civilization? According to the website morethan2.com, the definition of polyamory is the fact of having simultaneous close romantic relationships with two or more other individuals viewed as an alternative to monogamy, especially in regards to matters of sexual fidelity, the custom or practice of engaging in multiple romantic relationships with the knowledge and consent of all partners concerned despite new laws and social prejudice against multi-partner relationships people have continued people had continued to engage in polycentric romances throughout the 19th and 20th century however they had done so underground which was mostly due to the same sex and queer individual pair-ups rather than the fact that multiple people were in love anti-sodomy and sexual deviancy laws played a strong part in keeping poly couples private so like I said like it's not so much that you are with multiple people although that was looked down upon but if you're with multiple people and you're two men together or two women together that's when you run into problems. Right.
0: And I don't understand why there are any sex laws at all. Ever. Right. The thing should the, the only sex law should be like that both people have to be adults and consenting. Yep. Period. I mean I don't know I can't I'm sure there's some weird off thing that could make sense as a law but that should be the basis. Are you both adults and are you both consenting?
1: And do you know what you're consenting to? Because that's exactly. a big thing too because a lot of times people think they're consenting to one thing and they're not. So like you're both full, fully aware and consenting to all parts of this.
0: And that's and yes, the only law. Yep. You're not raping the other person. Yep. Okay, good. Go have fun. <laughs> good talk. In 1929, famous philosopher Bertrand Russell released the, the book Marriage and Morals. Russell was an incredibly complex and controversial figure And his book read the same. In one chapter, he he supported the aberrant practice of eugenics, which is the process of eliminating those in society deemed undesirable, often through death or sterilization. The idea is that by removing these individuals' abilities to reproduce, and thus eliminating their so-called defective genes, we will eventually achieve a master race. And if that term sounds familiar, that is because the concept was the basis of the Nazi extermination of Jews. So needless to say, Russell's support of such a practice is heinous. On the other hand, he was known to be incredibly generous and charitable. In the book Marriage and Morals, Russell became, Becomes one of the first men to openly oppose rape and marriage. And remember, marital rape was not made illegal in the United States until 1993, but 64 years earlier, Russell had written, "Marriage is for women. Marriage is for women, the commonest mode of livelihood, and the total amount of undesired sex endured by women is probably greater than marriage." in marriage than in prostitution. Um, And can we just say about this whole eugenics mass race Mm -hmm. thing, what makes these assholes think that they have the perfect fucking genes over everybody else?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, see, so, I mean, this really started with with evolution. When evolution, when Darwin, like, came...
0: Yeah, I totally get that concept. But what makes these assholes think, like, my genes are better than this race's genes. Yeah. So, therefore, my genes should stay and their genes should go.
1: Well, I know I agree with that. I agree with that that that's it's the arrogance of being like, well, okay, well, let's find out like because the survival of the fittest are so like, well, who among us is the fittest, mm-hmm. and they will all be the fittest, but there's always going to be a weaker person. like not everyone can be the fittest. but you know, and but the eugenics didn't start. I mean, the con- concept is heinous, mm-hmm. but it didn't start. It wasn't these weren't like it wasn't first proposed by evil bad men. Bertrand Russell was actually a good man, but they, people just believed that like, We've got to we've got to get rid of the the weaker people. And they didn't like most of these men didn't like uh, condone taking everyone out and shooting them, but they did condone sterilization. And that's why you see a lot of um, black people and people of color were sterilized in the United States because of this eugenics law. And then, of course, we know what eventually that led to. But yeah, the the entire concept, but it still goes on today. There's still people that believe in the eugenics bullshit. Oh,
0: absolutely. Like white supremacists.
1: Yeah. And I also want to point out the his his um his comment though on women where he's like um the total amount of undesired sex endured by women is probably greater in marriage than in prostitution. Mm-hmm. And that was true at the time. Absolutely. Like, you could you as a woman you only had you basically had your body to sell. They just called it marriage. You mm-hmm. know. So naturally his views on marital rape were not well received, neither were his thoughts on non-monogamy, where Russell proposed that this was not immoral for people to explore sexually outside or within the bonds of marriage. He believed that our monogamous society must evolve with the times, and continued to teach and elaborate on this point long after marriage immorals and his philosophical teachings had earned him a Nobel Peace Prize. You okay?
0: Yeah, I'm just blown away that somebody who fucking (laughs) supports eugenics won a Nobel Peace Prize. But the
1: thing is, if you read the writings of the time, the majority of scientists supported eugenics. It wasn't until they started to see what supporting this belief did that folks were like, oh shit, maybe this is why we shouldn't support. Like... It was like a natural thing after Darwin came out with the theory of evolution and people are just like, oh, obviously we'll just create a master race. I it could never have so good.
0: in my mind ever thought that eliminating or sterilizing a, a group of people was a good idea, no matter what science said. Yeah, well, I just couldn't. I I don't know. Maybe it's called being a decent human. I
1: think so. But I also think that we are hundreds of like over 150 years later. And um, part of that well, not with Bertrand Russell, mm-hmm. but 100 years later. And part of that is also look at the way people in general are looked at back then. That's I mean, true. This is right after slavery um, that Darwin presents his theory. Women don't have rights. Um, Latin Americans don't have rights. Like, no, few people in America have rights. The straight white guy is still mm-hmm. the only person to have rights. So we're still in this mentality of some people are better than others. Right. You know. But I agree with you. I mean, it's it's crap. But again, this is... Like we were, we're like just a few decades away from owning people. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's folks like eugenics. That sounds great. So, uh, Russell wrote in 1936, the difficulty of arriving at a workable sexual ethic arises from the conflict between the impulse to jealousy and the impulse to polygamy. There is no doubt that jealousy, while in part instinctive is a very, is to a very large degree conventional. In societies in which a man is considered a fit object for ridicule if his wife is unfaithful, he will be jealous where she is concerned, even if he no longer has any affection for her. Thus jealousy is intimately connected with the sense of property, and jealousy is less where the idea of property is absent. In the meantime, if marriage and paternity are to survive as social institutions, some compromise is necessary between complete promiscuity and lifelong monogamy. To decide on the best compromise at any given moment is not easy, and the decision should vary from time to time according to the habits of the population and the reliability of birth control methods. So just a really long way of saying that like jealousy stems from thinking that you own someone, which that I don't think that's all true, but like that's what he's proposing, mm-hmm. and that we have to evolve as a society on this issue.
0: So despite his efforts Russell was eventually and ironically deemed too immoral to teach in schools and universities though he did continue to travel and speak with the boom in sexual research spurred by Alfred Kinsey's by the oh by Alfred Kinsey with the boom in sexual research spurred by Alfred Kenzie's 1940s and 1950 publishings followed by the sexual revolution of the 60s and the queer liberation fight of the 70s and 80s, one might think poly couples were safe to come out of hiding. But sadly, they had a new foe, the gay and lesbian movement. In an effort to prove they were quote-unquote normal, white middle-class gay and lesbian activists wanted to present a traditional front. Again and again, transgender, gender nonconforming, queer people of color, leather and BDSM, and polysexual people were silenced and ignored. Fear and prejudice swept gay and lesbian alliances as they worried the movement would be seen as too radical if others had a voice. So it should not be much of a surprise. Um, The term polyamorous would not even be publicly introduced to the world until 1990. And it was coined by a witch, a witch named Morning Glory Zell Ravenheart. That is a witch name.
1: But Mm -hmm. yeah, I just want to pause on that. So um, again and again, and this is the ongoing argument in the queer community, and we've talked about it a lot on the podcast of the the white middle-class gay and lesbian movement versus the queer liberation movement, which was made up of people of color, poor people, trans people, uh, leather and BDSM, polysexual people. And, and even today we still see it. Like you can see in different parades. Like if you go to the Boston um, Pride Parade, you see this very traditional white um, family-oriented parade. It's yep. done at like noon or something. And then you go an hour away to the Providence parade and you see a very different story. Yeah. Um, and so there's still this battle, like some people are like, we have to present a traditional front so that we'll be accepted. And then there's other people that are like, fuck that. We don't want to fit into their boxes. We don't want to conform. We can do this without them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, <clears throat> but back to morning, glory, Zell Ravenheart. Ravenheart was born in 1948 and given the name Diane Moore a fitting Christian name for the baby of strict Pentecostal parents. However, the religion was not for the young woman who rejected it when she was 17 after reading the book Diary of a Witch by Sybil Leek. So watch what your kids are reading, folks.
0: (laughs) It's the gateway to hell. (laughs) That's
1: right. Morning Glory changed her name and joined a local commune in Oregon. She began to study the dark arts and soon entered into an open and pagan marriage to a hitchhiker she met. That sounds like a great idea.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but the marriage ended in divorce a few years later when Morning Glory fell in love with a wizard named Tim Zell. The two also maintained an open and multi partnered relationship, usually with five to six lovers bonded together. After the Glory Zell union, Morning Glory took over edit- editorship of the group's neo pagan journal, Green Egg, around 1969. The priestess would oversee the journal off and on for the next thirty two years, and it was through this magazine that the editor introduced the concept of polyamory to the world in an article titled Bouquet of Lovers. She had a crazy life. She she had a she had a different life, that's true. But, <laughs> no, that's what I meant. Like yeah, it was like exactly. wild,
0: it was full of events, it was Yeah, up it and was down definitely and all not over. boring.
1: Not traditional. Yes. <laughs> uh,
0: the or- the article. The article. The article shot the magazine back into the public eye after it had been fairly dormant for over a decade. With new terminology and the budding internet, people were able to come out as polyamorous, and that movement saw a breakthrough. Uh, One of the first online groups was established by Jennifer Wesp in 1992 under the Usenet forum atl.polyamory.
1: I don't know what that is, but I looked up a picture of it, and it looks very early 1990s internet. I mean, this is baby, baby
0: internet. Mm -hmm. So there's probably, like, when you moved your mouse cursor, there's probably, like, a calendar or, like, a clock that followed <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, where it just, like, it there, like
1: every time you move it, there's, like, a spin yep. Yeah,
0: music played in the background. <laughs> By 1995, poly people were establishing so many connections that a flag representing the group had been created, and the term polyamory had been submitted to the Oxford Dictionary. Further evidence came in the form of the popular book The Ethical Slut, which we spoke about in the last episode, Mm -hmm. which was published in 1997 and written by Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy. However, we see the prejudice of the time as the authors felt safer using a pseudonym, which is why the first first edition bears the name Catherine A. List's on the cover, the book discussed on the cover. The book discussed polyamory as more than the mere act of sleeping with multiple partners. It presented a moral and ethical lifestyle to the general public.
1: So the book was, it was huge, especially in poly worlds. I mean, um, it got like mixed reviews in the the, um, regular media, but still, for anybody to be talking about a book about polyamory at this time was big. This is 1997. This is like, I think the year that Ellen came out as gay and like lost everything. So like, obviously... It wasn't like the general public was like right. super excited but people were buying the book. Like everyone's pretending that they don't care or that this is this is immoral and of course going to the whole see like we let the gays come out now look at this. Um, mm-hmm. but, um but but the book was selling and it, you know, it's done very well. And that is what separates polyamory from any other form of non-monogamy, back to the ethical lifestyle. In 1999, the Oxford Dictionary did accept the proposal of the word polyamory and stated the definition as such. The practice, state, or ability of having more than one sexual loving relationship at the same time with the full knowledge and consent of all partners involved. Today, the definition has simplified to read, the practice of engaging in multiple sexual relationships with the agreement of all people involved. And there is an added note, Open marriages and polyamory can work well for couples who communicate well. So I don't know if that's supposed to be like a disclaimer. It's a fucking dictionary. um, (laughs) By the way, you might
0: want to talk about it.
1: Exactly. It's just weird to me that they're putting that in there as if someone's going to be like, I'm suing the dictionary because they told me that there's polyamory (laughs) and I got in a polyamorous relationship and now we're divorced.
0: (laughs) So the most commonly quoted ethics in polyamory are fidelity and loyalty, communication and negotiation, honesty and trust, dignity and respect, and non-possessiveness. Poly-individuals understand that jealousy is a part of every relationship and work to combat that. One term used in the polyamorous world is compersion, compersion, which is used to express joy at a partner's joy in another relationship. Every group of individuals may have their own terminology, but some other commonly used terms are such. Triad or quad this refers to the group triad means a relationship involving 3 people where quad means the same only with 4 people how the individuals date each other will vary from group to group in some triads or quads everyone dates each other everyone dates one another in other triads quads the coupling may be more defined some individuals will date everyone in their group but only fluid bond with specific people fluid bonding is the act of not using protection during sex
1: and I can't stress enough throughout this how different it's going to vary from person to person. So, like, the the morals and ethics are the same. But as far as your triad, your quad, or, like, some people even have more in their group. Um, but those are the most common ones. Like, you, again, that doesn't mean that everyone's dating together. There could be a, a couple together, and then they each have their own boyfriends mm-hmm. and girlfriends. And then, um, but then there may be four people that live together, and they all, you know, like they all engage in sexual intimacy, or you might get different things. Like you have a romantic connection with this person. You have a sexual connection with this person. Yep. Some poly people use a higher hierarchical. I put this word in here so many times that I can't say it. Some people, Mm -hmm. some poly people use a hierarchical method, a hierarchy for their lovers. While other individuals may not use this method method. Those who use the hierarchy levels rate their relationships in order of importance. For instance, a married couple would usually place their spouse as their primary partner. Then each individual would choose a secondary and sometimes a dietary partner, which is three. I learned a lot of words. How couples navigate this, again, varies from group to group. Sometimes a primary partner will have veto power on their partner's other relationships. Usually the term is simply used to establish boundaries and guidelines for other lovers. So like, look we can have a connection, but if you try to come between me and my primary, we're going to have to cut this off.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Another term used by both hierarchical and (laughs) non-hierarchical quads. Oh my God. My mouth just doesn't move like that. I, (laughs) I need to do some tongue exercises, maybe suck some dick and like work out my muscles. Paul's shaking his head.
0: Yeah, probably. All right.
1: <clears throat> but the another term is used is nesting partner. And this specifically refers to couples who live together. And while that fact may not establish a level of importance, it does exhibit a level of entanglement for all parties to be aware. So obviously, if you're living with someone, it's going to be different. Like I live with this person. So if you don't like them, that's going to cause a lot of problems right. for us, <laughs> you know.
0: It is also important to note that sex is not the foundation of polyamorous relationships. Like any other romantic relationship, polyamorous couples become involved for the same reason. The difference being that these couples are also involved with other people. And depending on the level of comfort and desire to explore, some people may continue to have casual sex, while others will remain committed to their triad or quad. Jesus. While others will remain committed to their triad or quad. What is essential is honesty and communication. Whatever rules and guidelines the couple or group agrees upon, the individuals involved should comply. As with any monogamous or non-monogamous relationship, what erodes a romance is not sex or dating, but rather lying, cheating, and possessiveness.
1: So uh, there was a show, and it's probably still on. There it was on Amazon Prime. I don't remember what what it's called. It's polyamory something. I'm moving stuff around. It was polyamory something, and it um. And i really liked it because the first season the first season was like it was this couple this quad that where they all were experienced in polyamory they had been in polyamorous relationships some of them had been in polyamorous relationships for like 20 years um and this and they liked the way they explored and then there was a triad of people that would basically they had just all kind of fallen in love and they were just starting to explore polyamory like they had been together for a little while but i liked it because It just showed the different ways, because we're talking about, you know, like it's what the rules of the group agrees upon, and it shows a very difference where these experienced people in polyamory have such good communication and understanding of each other and their other relationships. And this triad really struggled um, to like, come to terms with that. Like one Mm -hmm. of them wanted to date someone else and the the other two were having a hard time with it. Um, The second season got really stupid, but the first season was really good. I liked it a lot, but it just made me think of that. So over the last twenty years, there has been an explosion of information and exposure to polyamorous communities, and with this has come a mixed bag of reactions. Since its publication in 1997, the Ethical Slut has been published three has had three yeah. the Ethical Slut has published three editions, several hundred thousand copies, and been adapted into uh, the play Multiple O's. It's also been translated into a couple um, uh, languages. In addition, several more popular books on the subjects have been written, such as More Than Two and Opening Up, along with a host of others. Television series have featured polyamorous relationships and dozens of movies have been made. One of the most recent and our favorite tells the true story of the creator of Wonder Woman. The movie Professor Martson and the Wonder Woman is excellent as is currently available on Hulu. And I loved that movie. Loved it.
0: But of course, there has been pushback. In the fight for marriage equality, one of the most common <coughs> arguments used by opponents was that same-sex marriage would open the door for polyamorous couples, and we can't have that now. How, uh, why? However, Sadly, the queer community often denounced Den- poly practices in an effort to protect and distance themselves from the fallout around the issue. As a response, many poly people have pushed to have polyamorous defined as an orientation. But even well-known gay activists such as Dan Savage has declared, polyamory isn't something you are, it is something you do. An idea that once again reduces polyamory to nothing more than sex, which further allows for the discrimination and limitation of polysexual people.
1: Which it's true, polyamory is a lifestyle, but polysexual, and I think that's kind of like the the people are getting the language confused. Right. Like people po- people are polysexual, and they're like, this is a um, this is an orientation. This is how I've always felt. I've always felt like I need multiple mm-hmm. uh, romantic and sexual connections. And he's saying, you know, and he's using polyamory, and saying this is something that you do. And I I don't know. I mean, I think that if that's what needs to be classified to get people to be able to have multiple relationships and be protected under the law. And that's what should happen. Mm-hmm. You know, vice media reported in 2016, the many obstacles poly people face in America and around the world. For instance, in Connecticut, outdated zoning laws restrict the number of unmarried adults who can live together in both Alabama. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs>
0: I'm- how does roommates work
1: then? I, I guess it doesn't. I don't know. But it, the thing is that law has been traced back in other states to specifically keep poly couples from living yeah. together. Um, in Alabama and Florida, laws are still in place that, criminal, that criminalize adultery, making it dangerous for polyamorous married couples to engage with their quad or triad. Now, how strictly that's enforced, especially in fucking Florida, who right. knows? But it's just the idea that um, adultery is illegal.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: In Australia, a social worker was fired simply because she listed herself as a poly-friendly therapist. And of course, this doesn't touch on the social prejudice and discrimination that polysexual people face on a day-to-day basis, which is why adding it as an orientation would be so beneficial in protecting the rights of poly people and poly couples.
0: However, even the polyamorous community is divided on whether... On whether to classify being polysexual as an orientation, despite there being an evidence that suggests non-monogamous people experience higher levels of testosterone and sex drive. Still, some suggest that establishing polysexual as an orientation would limit the concept of multi-love. The argument, as a whole, is very similar to the argument in the queer community about how marriage legalization might change the lgbtq lifestyle and queer lifestyle has evolved but that is not necessarily a bad thing regardless of disagreements among poly people the fact remains that they deserve equality and protection but still the argument is made in the lgbtq movement that condoning or endorsing polyamory will cause other queer groups to suffer the the conservative backlash what we must ask ourselves is how long will we sacrifice the equality of others for our own gain yeah
1: And I remember that, that, that conversation and, um, you even hear it today in queer circles where like, um, people didn't want marriage equality to pass because they're like, that's not what it's about. I don't want to be like, I don't want to be reduced to heteronormative standards, but then also it's kind of nice to be protected and have,
0: yeah, I want all the same rights as everybody else.
1: Exactly. Man, Samantha and I filed for our, um, our, what you call it, our, uh, as married and we both like got a nice, um like cut in our taxes because of that. That's nice, you know. I
0: bet. I yeah. well, mm-hmm, I want a tax cut. Yeah,
1: that's right. Get your get your boyfriend on board. Um, but yeah, I mean it, that's the whole thing. And more importantly, like if like one of us passes away, the other won't be able to take care of yeah, like
0: you have protection over everything. Exactly.
1: There's so much more involved. There's so much involved in that. And poly people want the same thing. So who cares if you want your one partner by your bedside or you want your three partners by your bedside. You should be able to hey, have the people You won't love be cold there. in the winter. That's right. So as we bring this series to an end, we do want to point out that, of course, polyamory isn't for everyone. Monogamy has worked for many people and societies throughout the centuries, though certainly not as well as some would have us believe. Ultimately, an individual should have the right to explore and express themselves how they choose, provided all parties are of age, informed, and fully consensual. Furthermore, we cannot stress enough the importance of open communication and honesty. If you believe you are polysexual but your partner is not, then it is not right nor fair to expect them to change for you. Our advice would be to go to counseling, educate yourself on the ethics of polyamory, and decide how to move forward.
0: Many of your recommended resources were listed throughout the episodes, but we will list them again uh, with even more. If you are single, we strongly recommend the third edition of the book, The Ethical Slut. If you are currently in a relationship and looking to open things up, then we recommend the book More Than Two by Franklin Vo and Eve Rickert. Both of these books are very accessible. If you don't like books, then check out the long-running podcast, Polyamory Weekly, available on most podcast platforms, or you can watch the Amazon Prime series, Polylove. There's also countless videos and even TED Talk panels on YouTube that are great that are great to check out. Expert Esther Perel has several talks and also hosts a podcast. And if you uh, just want to get hot and sweaty, then make sure you watch Professor Martson and the Wonder Woman on Hulu. And as a side note, if you want to see the abuse and distinct differences of polyamory versus polygamy, there is an A&E series on Netflix titled Escaping Polygamy that really shows the neglect the neglect and realities of these misogynistic relationships. And yeah. also, there these resources are worth checking out. Just so that you can help support the polyamory community.
1: Yeah, yeah. Be informed. Just educate yourself. Yeah, exactly. Be informed. You know, maybe you're not polysexual, but again, the same thing. Like just because we, you know, we have friends who aren't queer doesn't mean that we don't want them to um, support us. Also, uh, most poly people identify on some spectrum of queer. Of queer, not peer. (laughs) Of queer. Maybe not every single one, but a lot of them do. I mean, so. The, these are members of our community, and like we need to support them. So, I mean, the same way we want people to be educated about us, we want them to be educated. And those are great resources to educate yourself. But, um, but yeah. So, um, stay yeah. queer. Don't get a lobotomy.
0: We love you, our little allied hookers. And our little succulent sapphists. And our proud homocrats.
1: And go um, have yourself a quad or triad sodomy circus this weekend. Or... Any weekend.
0: Live your life how you want to live it. That's right. As long as everybody involved in your life is consenting.
1: (laughs) Exactly. As long as you're not forcing people and as long as you're not a dickhead who's um, marrying six women but not letting them express themselves any other way. So goodbye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and review wherever you are listening and follow us on social media at Your Queer Story.
0: Like what you heard. Want to share your story? Send us a voice message to add to the podcast from the Anchor app or at anchor.fm slash yourqueerstory.
1: And if you would like to support the work we do or get exclusive content, check us out on patreon.com slash yourqueerstory.
0: See you next week. Bye. Bye.